Let me just pray for us as we begin to move on. So everybody just bow your heads with me. Let me pray that God would use this time in a mighty way. Father, you are not surprised with who's here. You have everyone here that you have drawn to yourself, to this place, to this church. And so I pray today that you would move in us, that you would change us according to your word, that you would work in us to make us into the best us we can be, which is to be a reflection of your son, Jesus. Father, I also pray that you would not only let us understand truth in your word, but that you would work it into our hearts, that you would change us to want to to desire you more than we did when we first came in, and that in all of that, that you would receive all the glory, and your son Jesus would be made famous in this place and all around Etowah County, and even to the ends of the earth, because of the work you allow us to do with you. And we ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. What's so amazing about grace? We're in week three. We're only, we only have 10 verses we're covering in this whole series, and so I, I just want to reiterate a few of the things that help us to get back in the moment of what we're doing here. We have sung about amazing grace I don't even know how many times. Uh, we, we have talked about it a whole bunch. We have, we have listened to people talk about it in Sunday school. We see it on TV even when we watch like Lifetime movies, if you watch that stuff. I don't really watch that. Every once in a while I get stuck there. But, you know, I, we see it everywhere. But what is really so amazing about grace? What is really so amazing about grace? That's something I think we often sing about amazing grace, and we talk about it without really recognizing the immensity of God's grace shown to us in Jesus. And so in this passage of Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, we are unpacking that. Let me back up and read verse 1 on. We're going to be focused in this week, verse 6 and 7. That's where we're hanging out this week. So I'm going to read to give us the context, verses 1 up to there. So just let's go back and look at first three verses are nailing us down. It's basically a summation of Romans chapters 1 through 3 of saying why we're all sinners and why we were dead. And God uses big language for it. Look, verse 1, chapter 2. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Again, that's an on-purpose word, dead. You weren't just sick. You weren't just kind of hurting. You were dead spiritually in your sins and trespasses in which you once walked. Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work, and the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passion of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Let's hang on to that for just a minute. In other words, we were dead. We weren't just hurting. We weren't just sick. We were dead, like dead as a doornail, kind of dead in our spiritual state, walking around talking dead people because we were dead to the things of God, dead spiritually, not recognizing his glory, not giving him credit where credit is due, not even able to do that or desirous to do that. We were dead in our sins, in our trespasses, in crossing the boundaries we should not cross and in not doing what we should have done. We were dead in those things, following the course of this world, following the way everybody else is going, following the enemy of Christ the prince of the power of the air, among whom all these sons of disobedience, we were one of them. And then it even gets down to saying that, and we were by nature, it's our very nature that we are that sinful, that we deserve hell and wrath because we are sinners at the core. We sin because we are sinners. We've inherited that all the way down the line since Adam and Eve. And so by nature, 
We are children of wrath like the rest of mankind. This should be a wake-up call. This is a parenthetical for us. This should be a wake-up call that we do not look at anyone else and think that we are better than them just because we are Christians, just because we go to church. Because just like them, until we were made alive by God's work in Christ, by His Spirit, by His people, whoever spoke the gospel to us, and God used that to make us alive. Until then, we were no different like the rest of mankind. And so whatever is different in us is not because we are better than or because we've done so much better than they, and it's not because you know they should just pick themselves up by the bootstraps and do a better job. If you're dead, you're dead. There's nothing you can do about it until God intervenes. Amen? Dead. Dead. This should make us to glory because of what we see next. We were dead in our trespasses and sins, and we were by nature children of wrath, but God, verse 4, but God, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. And we're going to camp out here, but to really get it again, let's read verse 4 on again to kind of hit back verse 6 and 7. It's all kind of one big thought. There's three pieces to it. Three major verbs pushing out to us here. He says, but God, being rich in mercy, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, here's where we pick up the verb, God made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And he's raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. These are the three big pieces we see. He made us alive, he's raised us up with him, and he's seated us in the heavenly places. But not just that, but he's doing it with Christ. All of this is in Christ and with Christ. Look at it again one more time. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, not because we loved him, but because he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with Him, and seated us with Him in the heavenly places, in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Again, God is the actor. He's the major player. He's the one doing the heavy lifting. Dead we are. He makes us alive. He raises us up. He seats us in the heavenly places with Christ. Now, what I want to do with this is I want to unpack this just in a purely, what we'll use in the theological realm or biblical realm, be exegetical fashion. We're just going to walk through the text, and we're going to unpack these words. Now, I'm going to start kind of from the end because I want you to get to the ultimate purpose in this. So let's start in verse 7. He says, so that. That means all the stuff he's just done is for this purpose, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. That should ring in your ears back to verse 4 where it says, but God being rich in mercy, that same rich word used now down here in rich, 
Look, I want you to understand, if I just said it plainly to us today, where are we headed? Let me just give you the mile marker, the post where we're going. You are rich beyond your wildest dreams in Jesus. Hey, not you will be rich. You are rich beyond your wildest dreams in Jesus. Say it another way. God has blessed you beyond measure in Christ Jesus. How do we know that's what he's talking about? Go back and look at verse 7. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. That's what his purpose is here. Let's go back even further. Look at chapter 1. Flip over one page if you've got your Bibles open. Chapter 1. Verses 1 and 2 is the salutation. It's the hello moment. In verse 3, we pick it up. We know this. We've covered it a lot. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has, past tense, who has blessed us in Christ, there it is again, with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. In other words, by having Jesus, we've been given everything that could bless us in Jesus. We've been given it already. Already it has happened. We are rich. If you are in Christ, if you have put your faith, hope, your dreams into Jesus, if you have given your life to him, if you've been born again, if you've been made alive, raised up with him, you are rich beyond imagination. It says immeasurable. We're going to break this down into three pieces. The first part is that his riches of grace are immeasurable. Now, this is where we get into how to read the Bible, right? You may be wondering, like, why aren't we going to camp out on that? We just talked about it. No, no, no. When you read Scripture and you're studying it, you should write it out. I encourage you to write it out with a space in between every line. And you go back and you find the words that are difficult to understand or phrases or maybe just a word that's kind of big in meaning. And you go back and you write some synonyms over each one of those words to make sure you really understand the depth of what's being said, right? So I'm basically going to do that. We're going to look at some things scripturally that are unpacking this word immeasurable. Are you ready for that? Let's do that. In fact, I would even argue the best way to do that is to open up your Bible, and if you have footnotes or if you have some references, you turn your Bible and you find those references, or go to ESV, like English Standard Version, what I preach out of, esvbible.org, and on that you can find all the references. You pay a little bit of money and you get the whole study Bible that shoots you all over the place to study these texts, to see all the ways they connect. Let me just do a little easy connection for you. When you're studying a book of the Bible, you oftentimes find things that might be a little confusing. Well, the first thing you do is look at the other passages around that passage in the same letter and see if it gives clarity. Well, it does. It does. Chapter 1. Look at this. His riches of grace are immeasurable. Let's just see what some of these riches are. This is going to be kind of a highlight from a series in the past. Chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Now he unpacks those, right? So this is how we've been blessed. This is how you're rich beyond measure. The first one, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, you are immeasurably graced with riches of God that cannot be counted because he chose you in Christ before the foundation of the world, before, you're, before you were a twinkle in your mama's eye, before you were ever conceived, he loved you more than you possibly can understand. And he loved you so much because of his great love for you that he chose you before the foundation of the world that you would love him back. That is amazing grace. That's immeasurable 
grace that he would do that. Knowing that you would be a sinner, knowing that you would be a rebel, knowing that you would do all the things you've done in your life, knowing that you would not do all the right things you should have done in your life, knowing that you're doing the things you're doing right now that go against him, and he chose you if you are in him or if you will be in him when you come to faith. He chose you to be his before the foundation of the world. He goes on, though. He doesn't stop there. He says, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. Now, that word makes us really uncomfortable, but it's in the Bible, right? And here's what he's saying. Not only did he choose us before the foundation of the world, but he's saying he predestined us for adoption. He didn't just choose you to go to heaven. He didn't just choose you to come and serve him. He chose you to make you his sons and daughters. That's amazing. Even though you've rebelled, even though every time you've sinned that sin, you keep sinning, that's one more reason why Jesus was put on the cross. Every time that you do the things you should not have done or that you don't do the things you should have done, that's one more hit of the nail into the wrist of Christ. Every time that that happens is because you did those things. His immeasurable riches of mercy are greater than those things. That's amazing grace. We are rich beyond understanding. Because his grace and his riches of grace are immeasurable. We could keep going. Go back over. Look at verse, sin, verse 7. In him, in Jesus, we have redemption through his blood. The forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches. There's that word again. According to the riches of his grace. In other words, they are immeasurable. His riches, because it includes the fact that Jesus paid the price for your sins with his blood. Poured out for you on the cross. That when he died, his blood that hit the ground and spilled out all over the place was the blood that washes your sins away. And it is sufficient to wipe away every sin of every person that has ever or will ever live and still be worth more. It is effective for those whom God has chosen, whom he has predestined, whom he has brought to faith, and those whom, who have repented of their sin and believed on Christ. All those people, all of us hopefully in this room, all those who put their hope in Jesus, it's effective for them, but it's sufficient for everyone. That's how great and valuable and immeasurable it is. He paid the price for your sins, my sins, in blood, the blood of our Savior. And he saved you from your sins. Not just the sins before Jesus, but the sins after you met Jesus. Do we understand? Your sin before Jesus, that's easy. We're like, yeah, I did this and this and this, and then I met Jesus, and he saved me out of those sins. But do you recognize that we are such sinners that even now, every sin we commit demands that Jesus had to be on the cross in order for us to be saved? We need Jesus just as much today as the first time that we met him. We are still in need of that Savior just as much today. Man's sin is more than he can bear on his own to reconcile and make it right, but it is not more than Christ can bear. It's not more than he bore on the cross. We are finite, but God is infinite, even in his mercy and grace. His mercy is greater than all that we have received, even up to now. Look, think about it this way. I don't know about you, but I really struggle with, with forgiving folks sometimes. 
Now, I can forgive a lot of people for most things like that. Really quick, snap the fingers, done. Every once in a while, something happens, and it's really hard for me to forgive, right? You hurt someone that's really close to me, that's hard to forgive, right? If you, I'm being honest, if you embarrass me in front of a lot of people, that's hard for me to get over, just being real. Like, I, I, don't, I, don't, I can get over it, but I, I think I do in my head at least. Maybe you like this. You think you forgive somebody, and then all of a sudden you see them again, and it washes all over you, right? And you really realize you're not out of it. Or maybe you really did forgive that person. When you see them, the hurt just opens up again, and you have a hard time even speaking to them. And you may have forgiven them in your heart, but you don't trust them. You don't want to be around them, really. Man, that's not the way God forgives. That may be how we are, but there is no struggle for God to forgive us. Even though every sin we commit, nail Jesus to that tree, he looks at us when he should destroy us immediately. And he says, no, for that one, I gave my son and I forgive you forever. I wipe away those sins in the blood of my son, Jesus. And because he died for you and because you are mine, because I chose you out of my love, you are mine and I forgive you. And as far as that sin is away from me is as far as the east is from the west. That is amazing, immeasurable grace. Man, what grace the Lord has bestowed upon us. We are rich in that grace. In the depth of our sin, hearts black with sin that is inescapable, he sent his holy, perfect son to become our sacrifice upon the cross of his wrath. That's amazing. And when his blood, Jesus' blood, was spilt on the ground, the blood he used to wash away our sins, his blood that's immeasurably valuable, his blood that's immeasurably effective, his blood that's immeasurable in its healing abilities of our hearts and of our inescapable death. For we were dead in our trespasses and sins in which we once walked, but God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he's loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, for it is by grace we have been saved. That is immeasurably valuable blood of Christ. That is immeasurably awesome and great and amazing grace. We sing about it, don't we? Marvelous grace of our loving Lord, grace that exceeds our sin and our guilt, yonder on Calvary's mount outpoured, there where the blood of the Lamb was spilt. Grace grace, God's grace, grace that will pardon and cleanse within, grace, grace, God's grace, grace that is greater than all our sin. I wish I could say it were true that every time I looked in her eyes, I remembered this truth about God, but I named my daughter because I believe the Lord gave me a name sitting outside on the front steps of our church where we were in Maryland in the middle of the night when I was studying and I stepped out there to pray before she was ever born, and the name Hannah was given. And that name Hannah means God's grace. And so we did double portion with Hannah grace, right? Grace, grace, God's grace. Grace that is greater, because I do not deserve such a blessing. And as great and wonderful as she is to me, whoa, what the blessing of Jesus is above and beyond all those things, that he would give himself for me, that he would bring me out of my sin and my ineptitude and my wrath that I deserve, that he would take it all on himself on the cross. Oh, what grace we've been given. It's immeasurable. We cannot count it up. And then he raised us up with Christ in his resurrection. 
We're redeemed. We were dead and now we're alive. We were lost and now we're found because of his grace, not because of anything in us, but by the saving mercy and grace of God toward us in Christ. He calls it kindness. That word is not enough for the grace. What unsearchable kindness, what immeasurable grace. We were wandering aimless, but now we've been found. We were dead and lifeless, but now he has made us alive together with Christ and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Look, we cannot out God's grace. You cannot sin too much that God's grace cannot overcome it. You cannot do enough wrong things that Jesus' blood cannot wash those sins away from you. But I will tell you this, that if you love him, and if you have been bought by that precious blood, and you have been redeemed, and you're being made anew, you will hate the sin that put your Savior on the cross. It will change how you live. The sins we keep going back to, those sins that are hard to walk away from, when you see them in light of the gospel of Jesus, the good news of what he did, it changes how you view them. The problem is we turn back to things and set our eyes away from Jesus. We give ourselves over to things that draw our hearts away from Jesus. But if we were to stare in Jesus' face through the gospel, through the word, we would not endeavor to press back into the sins which so easily entangle us. Yes, we've been freed, but we're still at war within us until Jesus comes back and wipes the sinful desires away from us. But even now, we can experience that. We are rich, brothers and sisters, rich beyond our wildest dreams in Jesus. Look, not only all those things, he's also given us an inheritance. If you go back and read chapter 1, verse 11 through 14, it's crazy, right? You see, in him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him. You also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance, until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. You see, he's given us an inheritance in Christ. That's what it means when he says he has seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. He's talking about reigning and ruling with Christ. That is beyond my comprehension. That is outside of the box. That's too much, right? But listen to this in text, 2 Timothy 2.12. If we endure, we will also reign with him. That's strong language. If we deny him, he will also deny us. Revelation 24, 20 verse 4. Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. That doesn't mean they walked with him. They reigned with him. Revelation 22.5, this is after it's all said and done. It says, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, because he will be their God, they will be his people, and he will walk among them forever. That's the message, right? And it says, and they will reign forever and ever. Okay, that, that means that we have been seated with Christ in all the heavenly places. 
with Jesus, because of us being made alive, we've been raised from the dead, now we're being seated also with him in the heavenly places, meaning that we are seated where Christ is. Now, where is Christ? He's on the throne, on the throne. So imagine it much like I see every morning when I go and sit at the table or when I sit in the chair in the living room and I'm reading or catching up on whatever in the early morning and when my kids wake up, they run to me and want to get in my lap. And they are on my throne of the house, right? And they are there with me. Whatever I'm doing, they are doing. Asking questions, learning, loving, being there. That is where we are, not because we're there present in the same way that we will be one day, but because, because we have already been one, because Jesus has already paid the price. And if you are already his, then we know the Holy Spirit dwells in you, and now you're connected inseparably. He's sealed us for the day of redemption. We are sealed, guaranteed by the Holy Spirit. That means you can't lose it. You can't lose your salvation because the Holy Spirit has got you. Not because you prayed a prayer 11 years ago, but because the Holy Spirit has sealed you. You understand? It's not because you're strong. It's because God is all-powerful. And he has sealed you, and he will hold on to you, and you cannot lose it, and you are his, and the inheritance you get is not the golden streets. It's not the mansion. The inheritance you get is Jesus. Because in those moments when you go to be with him, you will see that even the streets cry out to his glory. It's about Jesus and being with him. That's why we need no lamp because we'll be in the presence of God himself. That is our inheritance. And so we already have him. If you know Jesus, you already have him. We are rich beyond measure, immeasurable riches of grace. We are rich beyond our wildest dreams. And not only are they immeasurable, secondly, I would tell you, his grace toward us is never ending. You may think, well, okay, so what? Why does it even say that? Go back and look with me. Look at verse 6 and 7. He's raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages, okay? And that's an idiom, I believe, in the Greek that's from the Hebrew idea that when he says ages in a plurality, he means all of the ages in the future, in the coming ages, in this age and the age to come, get it? And the one we're in, the one that's coming and forever. So in the coming ages... He might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Look, he is already continually working to make you and me into the perfect you and me. You know that? I say it often. He loves you too much to leave you where you are. He loves you too much to not continue to work in you to make you the better you. And the way he's making you into the better you is because he has the perfect mold, if we want to say it that way, because all of us are made in the image of Jesus, yet our images are broken. And so he is continually reforming and reshaping us into the image of Christ over and over and over again. Look back, Ephesians 1. Flip this time one, real quick. Wherever it is, Ephesians 1 verse 20. He's talking about the power, verse 17, 18, 19, 20. This is the power, verse 20, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. He goes on, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. In other words, he's saying there what he then says about us. Here he's saying it about Jesus. It makes sense, right? That he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. But now he's talking about us. Look over, verse Chapter 2, verse 6, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. 
so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. In other words, these things are happening to us because he's shaping us into his image. Do you get it? He was raised up. He's now seated in the heavenly places. So therefore, when you are redeemed, you are raised up and you are seated in the heavenly places with Christ. It's about having him. It's about being made into his image. Not only did he save us, not only did he make us alive when we were dead, but now we've been seated with him on his throne. We share in his kingdom, not as servants, but as sons and daughters of the king. That is amazing. That is immeasurable riches. So therefore, do not fear, brothers and sisters. What is there to fear? We have nothing to fear, for we've been seated in the heavenly places with Christ Jesus, our Lord and Savior. Look, Romans 8, 14 and 15. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. There's nothing to fear. So don't fear talking about Jesus in your workplace. Don't fear talking about the gospel to your kids who don't want to hear it. Don't fear. Now, don't be a jerk about it. Jesus wasn't a jerk to the people that needed Jesus, right? Don't be a jerk about it, but don't be fearful. What are they going to do? You're held by God himself. What can they do to you? You're already seated in the heavenly places. What can they take away from you? How can they hurt you? They're going to kill you? Well, to be with God's better. They're not even going to kill you in this country. They just might, you might get fired, right? You might lose a friend. You might, you might have a, a, a son or daughter that gets mad for a little while at you. What's the worst that could happen if you don't speak of the good news? Eternity in hell? That's a way greater thing. We have no fear, brothers and sisters. We are invincible. We cannot be defeated. We are in Christ forever, warriors of his glory. But the question I ask is, are we being that? Or are we sitting on the bench watching others get in the game? Or have we walked off the field and engaged in some other tr more, less trivial, I guess less important, more trivial matters? Romans 8, 35 through 39. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Fear not, brothers and sisters. What do they make fun of me? So what? God's going to pat you on the back. What if I don't have the answers? It's okay. You've got the right question answered. Follow Jesus, love Jesus, because he first loved you. And his grace is the gift that keeps on giving forever and ever, and it's immeasurable. We are rich beyond our wildest dreams in Jesus, brothers. Lastly, this is the one that we ruffle at a little bit. His grace is foremost for his own glory. That sounds kind of selfish our ears, but his grace is foremost for his own glory. That's because if, if you love someone, 
which I explained a little bit. If you love someone, you want to give them the best thing you can give them. If you love someone, you want them to have only the best things. That's why if you have sons and daughters or grandchildren, you, you pray for them, you desire best things. When they do something that's not the best thing, you try to talk them out of it because you love them. When they do something that's not the right decision or the best decision, you try to steer them another direction because you are jealous for their goodness, right? You're jealous for things to work well for them. You want them to have all the right things. That's why you work so hard for them. You want them to have all the right decisions. You don't want them to make the mistakes that you made. You want them to be making all the good decisions. You want the best things for them. And so if God is a God who is better than all of us as fathers... If he's the best father we could have, the best parent we could possibly have, the one who loves us more than our own parents love us, loves us with a perfect kind of love, an all-encompassing, immeasurable kind of love, then he wants what's best for us more than we can even imagine. And the best thing for us, the best gift he could give to us, the best thing he could deliver for us is himself, because he is the most wonderful and the best, if we'd say it when I grew up, the goodest, right, thing we could possibly have. I know some of you English teachers are shuddering right now. I can't get over it. He wants us to have the best. He wants the world to see the best and experience the best. He made it for that, and the best is Him. So when we say He is jealous for His own glory, we mean that because it is the right thing for the world to see and experience. It is the right thing for us to want above everything else. Look, we are created to demonstrate God's glory to the universe. Romans 9, 17. Listen to this. For the scripture, in the scriptures, God says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. In other words, he's saying, I raised you up, Pharaoh, so I would get glory over you when we defeat you with the Red Sea, when I crush you and your army. I gave you all that you have. I raised you up and gave an army that the world's afraid of. I gave you all the riches of the world so that when I crush you, everybody would look and be like, wow, that's a real big God. That's a great God to be feared. You may think, well, how does that even mesh with what we're talking about? Are we to be like that with him? Again, we talked before about fearing God. There's a level at which we should be in awe of God in that way. But let me push it to this. It is for his glory. Go back and look. Let's look at this text. Verse 4, 5, 6, and 7 of chapter 2 of Ephesians. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Listen, so that, here's the reason. You hear so that, that means, here's my reasoning. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. So he's putting on display his goodness, his glory, his immeasurable riches, and he's putting them on display by lavishing them upon us. So the reason he's doing it is so that his glory is made known, his goodness is made known, but he chooses to do that on those who believe in him, on those who are his. He says, because of the great love with which he loved us. So because he loves you, he's lavishing his glory on you and immeasurable riches of his grace, namely Jesus. He's giving you his best because he loves you, because he wants to put Jesus on display for the world to see and to glorify him. Do we understand? That's how this works. Because of the great love with which he loved us, God will show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Jesus. Praise 
the Lord, that he would give us Jesus. We deserve death, and he gives us life in Christ. We deserve condemnation and wrath, and instead he poured out wrath on Jesus, his son. We deserve all those things. Instead, he gives us the glorious, beautiful son, Jesus. We need to praise him because he deserves it for doing that thing. Let's put it this way, help us understand. There's some guys by the name of Hendrickson and Kistemaker. I don't know where they're from. Henderson and Kistemaker. They have a commentary series they do together, and they just had this illustration I could not pass up on this week. He says, we are his sparkling jewels. For illustration, he says, a Roman matron, when asked, where are your jewels, calls her two sons and points to them saying, these are my jewels. That's what we do, right? You have kids or a dog, whatever your favorite kid thing is to you, right? When people say, what are your greatest things? It's not usually the jewels on your, on your rings. It's the people or, or things that you love most, right? And that's what God is doing for us. Listen, he goes on. So also throughout eternity, the redeemed, that's us, will be exhibited as the monuments of the marvelous grace of our loving Lord, who drew us from destruction's pit and raised us to heights of heavenly bliss and did all this at such a cost to himself that he spared not his own son. And in such a manner that not a single one of his attributes, not even his justice, was eclipsed. He gave us Jesus so that Jesus might be lifted high, so that we might be experiencing fully the love of God in Christ Jesus forever, immeasurable, eternal for his glory. This is amazing grace. Nobody else could put that together. None of us could articulate all those things into one big picture and make it work, but God does so because he loves us and because he should receive the glory. So who are we then, brothers and sisters? Who are we to withhold glory from God when His grace demands it? Who are we? Who am I that I would not live out this mission to make much of Him because He's made much of me in Jesus? To not give Him glory that is due to Him because His riches of grace are immeasurable in Christ. Because His saving work is immeasurable in what it's done for us. Who are we to withhold that from him? Who are we to not speak much of him when we're at work? Who are we to not speak much of him in our families? You recognize the reason we evangelize is not to save the lost primarily. That is a close second. The first and main reason we tell people about Jesus is so that Jesus is made much of because he deserves the glory. And right along with it is so that people will be saved. It's both together. It should not ever only be that we hope somebody's saved. If we're not hoping they're saved to God's glory, we're missing part of the point. And that's so hard to recognize until you realize that you're not the one saving them anyway. When I first understood this, I actually said to the friend that was sharing with me through Scripture, I said, man, if I see that, then my whole reason for sharing the gospel is not to save souls. Primarily, it's there right with it, but it's really to make much of God. That wipes the legs out from underneath my evangelism. Why am I doing it? But then it didn't take long in praying and reading Scripture to recognize the reason that I tell people about Jesus is so that God gets the glory, because he deserves it. In fact, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to turn there right now. In, in Acts chapter 2, you guys get the bonus. I didn't do this in the early service. In fact, if you got your Bible, turn to Acts chapter 2. Write it down or something.
chapter 2, starting in verse 2. Here we go. I mean, start verse 1, chapter 2. When the day of Pentecost arrived, okay, all the disciples, Jesus had died, Jesus rose, he hung out 40 days, he goes to be with the Father. They're like, he says, don't do anything until I send the great comforter. So they hang out in the upper room, about 120 of them, and they're just praying, 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 waiting for the Holy Spirit to show up. They don't know what's going to happen. Verse 1, chapter 2. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished. Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? That means, aren't they all rednecks? That's what it means, okay? It says, and how is it that we hear each of us in our own native language, Parthenians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia and Pontus and Asia, uh, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues, listen, the mighty works of God. Did you notice what he says? He doesn't say we hear in our own tongues they're talking about Jesus. That's implicit. He's saying they're telling us of the mighty works of God. Because that's what it means to make much of him. They step outside and people gather because they hear their own language. And what are these guys doing? They're speaking of the mighty works of God. Namely, most efficiently, most effectively, Jesus on the cross. But we see they're telling the mighty works of God. We tell others about God so that they hear about God because he deserves to be talked about. You understand? He deserves to get the credit. And then we see Peter step up and clarify for everybody what's going on, and he brings them to Jesus. And they get saved, 3,000 in one day. We do not have any room to deny God the giving of that glorious praise in every moment of our lives. And that is why we know we're sinners still, because we don't do it all the time. We should eat and drink and do all we do for the glory of God. We should do everything we do so that God receives glory, and yet we fail over and over again. But His grace is immeasurable toward us. So even when we fail, we still get grace in Christ. Isn't that amazing too? We still fail. Man, if my kid doesn't do something right the third time, I'm so frustrated I can't talk. And yet we get grace immeasurable grace, forever grace in Jesus. That's amazing grace and love. So let us proclaim it from the rooftops, brothers and sisters. Let our mouths never tire of making much of Jesus because he's made so very much of us. Colossians 3 says, if you have then been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Oh, we are rich brothers and sisters, rich beyond comparison, rich beyond our wildest dreams, rich because God has given us Jesus. So set your eyes on the Savior, brothers. Set your hope on the Savior, sisters. Set your hearts, your minds, your very lives on Jesus, for you were dead, but God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace, we have been saved. 
And he's raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. That is amazing grace. Today, if you feel beat down, that is not my purpose. My purpose is to point you to put your hope in Christ. My purpose is to show you how glorious he is. Because as I've put my face into his word, he has made himself more and more known to me. That is my prayer for you. That today you will see him rightly. Today we will worship him rightly. In just a moment, we're going to take the Lord's Supper together. And when we do, we take it so that we may make much of him and enjoy him. Recognizing what he did for us in Jesus. That Jesus died on the cross in our place. His body broken for us. His blood, effectual, worthy, immeasurably worthy was spilled out for us so that we could be brought into the family. And when we take that, we're saying, I identify with him. He's the one I want to love. He's the one I want to serve because he first loved me. But we don't stop there. We're also saying we identify with this faith family, saying, this is the body of Christ I've been called to. This is the body of believers I'm going to spend my life with. This is the body of believers I'm going to support and call out when I need to and call upon when I need someone and call to go with me when we go out to give Jesus to others. This is who we are with. So together, with Christ and with one another, we partake. And if you are not a believer, if you've never given your life to Christ because he gave his life for you, then today is the day for you to do so. Put your hope in the Lord. Put your faith in the Lord and be rich with all of us in Jesus. And then partake and be a part of this place. And if you need to talk to somebody about that, if you can't get there, you have questions, you need prayer, I'll be down here after the service. We're going to take the Lord's Supper, we're going to sing, we're going to pray, we're going to be done. But after all that, I will be here for you. Let me pray for us now as we begin to take that together. Father, you are good. You are always right. So Lord, I I thank you for what you've done for us in Jesus. I thank you for what you've given in Christ, a Savior, a King, a brother who would give his life for us, his sisters and brothers who hated him at one point, who were dead spiritually, and he gave his life to make us alive. That sacrifice alone, Lord, is more than I can understand. It's what we should worship you for all eternity. Work in us now just to draw our faces back to you, that we might honor you and give you glory and make much of you. It's in Christ's name I pray these things. Amen.